pre-recorded, completely unscripted and about as organised as the thought processes of some members of the Australian Senate. You're listening to news, views and opinions on events from here at home and around the globe on politics, business and society in general. This is the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Welcome back, listeners. We're up to episode 25. Well, it depends how you look at it. It's either episode 25 of the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove, or it's episode one of the Iron Fist, the Velvet Glove, and the Twelfth Man. Because we have a special edition for you, Christmas bonus edition, with uh, three of us here tonight. Two jingle bells. Indeed. So I welcome the Velvet Glove and the Twelfth Man. How are you Hello. doing, everyone? Hello. So yes, we've got a bumper Christmas edition because I'm not sure if we're going to produce anything next week. So, um, <laughs> so this one might go more than an hour, and if so, then pause it and then replay the remainder next week. So, um, so anyway, episode 25, and the religious world has not let us down in the previous week. We've got lots to talk about, and being Christmas, I uh, stumbled across well. You would be in the shops at this time of year, you'd be hearing Christmas carols, and if you're secularly minded, Paul, are they annoying you out there, the Christmas carols? Oh, I haven't been near the malls, Trevor, I'm afraid. <laughs> right. I avo- avoid them like, uh, you know, you avoid a, a rabid dog. Right. <laughs> Uh, I've been out, but they haven't really annoyed me all that much, no. Yeah. Well, it's kind of nice to hear Christmas carols. Yeah, agreed. But if you do listen closely, you think, oh my God. Yeah. So the good news is, secular listeners out there, that there are actually uh, some alternatives. And I stumbled across uh, some sort of reworking of familiar tunes, and this was done by a group whose name I love, even if they did nothing else, just their name, they're called the Free Thinkers of Ventura County. And with a name like that, how could they go wrong? And what they've done is they've reworked a few Christmas carols. And, for example, uh, instead of Noel, they have There Is No Hell. And, <laughs> and the uh, There Is No Hell, No Judgment Day, no matter what some fundamentalists say. No fiery pit, no suffering, no blame. No one to condemn and consign you to flame. So, that gives you... What about the chorus? Can we try that? No No hell, no hell, no hell, no hell. 
Sing and be joyful, there is no hell. Beautiful. <laughs> Very good. The other one I liked is uh, it came upon a midnight clear, which is a tune that you, when you've heard it, you'll recognise it. Yeah. The words don't actually... You might listen to that and think, which song's that? But when you hear the song, you'll know the one. But the wording that they have changed around is a magnificent piece of of poetry and prose and I'll I'll take the time to read this one because it's quite good it came upon a midnight clear a thought so incredibly bold I'd realized I'd be taken in by all that I'd been told I looked at all the religious strife the conflicts in every land and suddenly it was clear to me that God was made by man for only man could make a God as cruel and and vindictive as he and if you doubt what I'm saying here just read the Bible and see This God of mercy, this God of love, is childish and vengeful and cruel. He acts a lot like a kid I knew, the bully in my old school. The Bible, hardly the word of God, was written by mortal hand. It's filled with fables, with myth and lies to comfort primitive man. Peace on earth will never come until we take a stand. Quit praising gods that don't exist and help our fellow man. <laughs> that is beautiful. It's beautiful work, and mm. of course, that all fits in with the tempo of the music. And so, yes, if you've got a guitar and some sheet music, and you can sit around a campfire this Christmas and substitute some tunes, mm. there's a challenge for you. Very good. I was actually at a party on Saturday night, mm. and the uh, request from the host was that everybody had to nominate a song that they liked and that meant something to them and that was part of your entry into the show and a friend of mine mike if you're listening he goaded me and said well you should pick some sort of secular song to play and in looking at this um, article that we just looked at i stumbled across uh, tim Minchin's version of white wine in the sun and of course dear listener that uh, you heard part of in the intro to the show, which, beautiful song. And uh, there was quite a few religious people in the crowd, and some of them were looking daggers at me. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but you were wearing your spiritual Kevlar, Trevor. I, I was. So, um, so yeah. And I, one old guy sidled up to me afterwards and said, I really enjoyed that song, you know, so... Yeah, but um, but other people were clearly looking at me as if I was some sort of degenerate. Well, you know, you can't please everyone. Can't please everybody. But, but there are people who are not necessarily religious who who do become quite defensive, don't they? When mm. you uh, say anything critical about Christmas, I'm I'm a bit of a probably a, a party pooper when it comes to Christmas because I, I dislike it. <laughs> right. I dislike it on principle because right. it's based on myth and lies. But, yes. um, you know, I don't mind people getting together with their family and having a good time, but for goodness sake, you don't need uh, the myth, you know, the, the, the mythical birth of a, uh, a superhero in ancient times to uh, as, a, as a basis for that. Well, you'd probably like this song. Like, when you look closely at the lyrics from White Wine in the Sun... Basically, what Tim Minchin is saying is, well, he's saying he likes Christmas, just the idea of getting together with family. Mm. He objects to, uh, well, words he uses there is, um, I have all the usual objections to consumerism, the commercialisation of an ancient religion, 
and the westernisation of a dead Palestinian. <laughs> great, <laughs> great stuff. Yeah, and uh, phrase, he it? does. And I like this one. I don't go for ancient wisdom. I don't believe just because ideas are tenacious, it means that they're worthy. I get freaked out by churches. Some of the hymns they sing have nice chords, but the lyrics are dodgy. So there's some really good words in there to a beautiful tune, and we'll play a little bit more of that later on in the podcast. So um, the other interesting, before we move off uh, Christmas carols, the other interesting thing with that is Tim Minchin donated that song to charity when the um, Salvation Army was producing a CD Mm. of Christmas songs. Yes. And the... uh, of course, it got onto the CD because nobody was really paying much attention to it. Mm. And then subsequently they realised that this anti-religious song had made it onto the CD. What a shock. Yes. And the, uh, the Salvation Army uh, said things like, well, we don't support the lyrics in the song. Uh, the Family Council of Victoria, what do you reckon they said? Uh, it's not quite in the spirit of Christmas. Is this somebody's idea of a sick joke? <laughs> and... Uh, and Rob Ward of the Australian Christian Lobby said the song was disrespectful. <laughs> well, that's almost the, the ultimate... Uh, Compliment. No it's, no, it's the opposite. I mean, to be disrespectful is almost... Puts you on par with uh, serial killers, doesn't it, these days? Yes. Yeah, it's, it's true, yeah. You know, to be told... Disrespectful. To, to be disrespectful is to be a serial killer, yeah. And Tim Minchin made the point was, well, he donated the song. He didn't actually know it was going to the Salvos, which was a group he objected to. Yes. Yeah. But when he found out, he didn't raise any fuss. He just thought, oh, well, okay, just let it go. Stealth. And, you know, if only they could have been as generous in return. Hmm. So, um, yes. So that's uh, a kickoff. A bit of positive stuff, I think. We're Ooh. always trying to get something positive on the podcast. So Christmas carols, everything you needed to know. Next up on the agenda, uh, well, you mentioned disrespectful, but the other word getting trotted around 12th man is tolerance. Or intolerance. Tolerance and intolerance. Mm. I've said enough. What if you guys say something? Ooh. Uh, what about Tony Abbott's outburst? Yes. That was... Um, what do you think? Uh, it's it's one, one of the few occasions I've ever actually sort of agreed with Tony Abbott, I have to say. Yes, yeah, so this is when he was saying that... Islam needs reformation. Needs reformation. Yes. And he was, he was quite moderate in, in, his, uh, in, in the way he put it, I thought. He didn't come out all guns blazing. And, and yet still people like Gillian Triggs, the Human Rights Commissioner, is that her? Yeah, so uh, she's... Uh, she's come out and said, well, he's, you know, just speaking like the typical old bigot that he is. Um, yes. Which was completely unfair, I thought. I think a lot of what he had to say was okay. Yeah. I didn't have a problem with it. Yeah. Um, did you read what Christina Keneally said in response? Yeah, I did. Partly. Christina Keneally was a former... New South Wales Premier. 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 Yes. Yeah, with a, a sort of a Canadian type accent. And she is a noted Catholic. And she, well, she, her retort to Tony Abbott was that, that, that you and I are members of the Catholic Church, and the Catholic Church didn't go through a Reformation. Reformation. No. That in fact, 
the Reformation was Christianity splitting yeah. into two parts, mm. Catholicism and the Protestantism. And so the the camp that that she and Tony Abbott are still in yeah. didn't actually undergo. It's the unreconstructed the section of Christianity. Yes. Yeah. Good point. Well, I don't know about that because I I did quite a lot of reading on um, religious matters when I was at university, and I I went to the Australian Catholic University in in Brisbane up at Banyo I think mm. is the campus and you know and uh, read went went through quite a lot of old articles um, written by Catholic scholars Catholic priest scholars. And they have a long tradition of scholarship. And, you know, uh, to be fair to them, there's a, a, a great diversity of um, interpretations of theology and, and just the general world by Catholic scholars. They're not all as uh, wedded to traditional Catholic theology as, as people might assume. Mm. You know, they're, they're, and there's some very... Um, there were some very left-wing Catholic theologians. You, you, you would recall the so-called liberation theology that came out of Latin America no. several decades ago. Right. Yeah, and you know the, the Vatican didn't like it mm-hmm. and, and basically punished several priests. I don't know exactly what the punishment was, probably just banishment to some little hellhole you know, <laughs> in the Amazon, d- deep in the Amazon basin or something but yeah there was this um, this current of so-called uh, liberation theology which was very left-wing right yeah and I think it might have been even tied up with um, what happened in uh, places like Argentina and Chile you know where but, but ultimately it was unsuccessful it was unsuccessful yes, yes. so does Christina Keneally have a point still or, or I'm not sure I think yes. I think she's she's looking through too narrow a lens at, at Catholicism in general yeah I, I, I'm going to talk about the Reformation in a second but before leaving what she had to say um, she was talking about you know sort of addressed from her to Tony Abbott about their church the Catholic Church and she was saying Our church denies women the ability uh, to control their fertility. Our church tells divorced people they have failed. Our church foists priests on parishes without consulting them. Uh, Our church thinks nothing of having a couple of hundred old celibate male bishops tell the rest of us about the proper role of sexuality in a relationship. She goes on a few other things and I think... After all that, why are you a member of that church? church. And that was precisely you have what to I ask, was, don't you? Well, that was precisely the question that I came up with after I read this. I, I was reading this and I thought to myself, well, why the bloody hell are you a member of the church? Yeah. Why would she publicly <laughs> proclaim her membership <laughs> to a, such a yeah. ridiculous organisation? Yeah. yeah, she rattled off a few of the things that we would... Yeah. <laughs> and you think, well, why the hell are you there? Yeah, exactly. Mm. Yeah, yeah. But um, on the topic of Reformation, so... We had uh, basically Christianity was the Roman Catholic Church and then the Protestant element broke off, which created uh, Lutherans, the Reformed, the Presbyterian, the Anglicanism. Yep. Baptists, yeah. Calvinism and things like the that. The bit that I've read, and uh, there'll be a link on the website, was, this is interesting, The theological issues of the Reformation. So the theology of the Reformers departed from the Roman Catholic Church primarily on the basis of three principles. 
One, they wanted uh, sole authority of scripture. Two, justification by faith alone. And three, what was called priesthood of the believer. So in relation to the first one, at that time, the, the Catholic Church was saying that doctrine was a combination of scripture and tradition. And the Protestants were saying, no, it should just be scripture. And hence why in America, they're so keen on the Bible mm. because it is all about, I didn't realize this until scripture. I read that, it's all about scripture. And your personal relationship with God. We'll get to that. But on the scripture part, when we talk about Islam needing a reformation, the key thing that everybody's saying is scripture. it needs to be able to amend the Quran and to ditch sections of it, which they can't at the moment because that's just blasphemy. The Quran is the word of God, it is holy, and you can't touch it. It's specifically prohibited yes. to change anything, isn't yes. it? So the kind of reformation that happened to Christianity is not what we need for Islam because the, the reformation in Christianity actually went from a combination of scripture and tradition to just scripture. And that's the last thing we need. We actually need scripture and some tradition so that they can somehow... Because the Islamic fundamentalists, that's precisely what they're on about, isn't yes. it? Is adhering to scripture. Yes. So when people call for a reformation of Islam, Yes, a reformation in the sense of changing things, but no, not a reformation as what happened in Christianity, because that's exactly the wrong thing for Islam, which was interesting. So they do need a reformation of, I would argue, both scripture and tradition. The, the second aspect, so this breakaway Protestants from the Catholic Church, the second sort of key thing that, or principle that they were wanting was um, justification by faith alone, which was uh, this doctrine maintains that we are justified before God by faith alone and not by anything we do, not by anything the church does for us uh, and not by faith plus anything else. So it's a case of your faith, your unquestioning faith is what will save you and take you to paradise. That was what the Protestants wanted. Yeah. Again explains this whole evangelical thing. Yeah. And it's exactly what we don't want Islam to be doing. <laughs> the problem is they've got too much faith at the moment. So um, It's such a thin veneer, isn't it? Just yes. faith. So it doesn't matter what you do in your life. It mm. doesn't matter how many people you murder, whether you abuse people, do horrendous things. If you have faith, particularly just before you die, that's all that counts. Apparently so, yeah. It's uh, and the third one related to priesthood of the believer, basically that all believers were, were priests in a sense. Mm. So that was ditching the Pope as the ultimate authority. Yeah. And again, one of the problems with Islam is we don't have a leader in Islam who, if we could just go and talk to yeah. and get him to change things yeah. it would apply to the whole of islam yeah. so so in summary yes be islam, off with the pope. well <laughs> yes the islam needs a pope-like character yeah. to actually change things yeah. so in summary you know when we when we're calling for a reformation the three key ideals of the protestant movement are exactly the opposite yeah. of what is required for yeah. islam yeah, yeah. which is interesting but th but that's to assume that the reformation in christianity was actually a good thing <laughs> uh, 
I think it's it's a contentious issue. I think so, because you look at it and you could say that really maybe the Catholic Church is one of the more benign versions of Christianity. Exactly. Mm. And at least... Uh, we might like the idea of a bunch of celibate men telling us, you know, what we should or shouldn't be doing in our bedrooms. But at least, and not all of them, but at least some of them are scholarly. At least some of them are well-educated, thoughtful people. Yes. Whereas in the Protestant tradition, anybody can become a preacher. Anybody. Exactly. Mm. And, and, and we saw with the, uh, the siege of the Lint Cafe, that, that turkey, that, um, that murderous... Modest. Maniacs, Modest, yeah. yeah. Well, he was a self-styled cleric as well, and they pop up all over the place. There was a young guy, there's a young Islamist in Western Australia who's under some sort of controlling order now, but he was like, I think he was only about 20, and he he put himself out as a, um, as a cleric, you know, and he was going around... Uh, Recruiting, you know, inf- uh, impressionable young Muslim men mm. to, to join the cause. And, you know, anybody can become a leader yes. in that tradition. Yes. Just like in the Protestant Christian tradition, anybody can become a preacher. Yes. Literally anybody. Yes. They've just got to hear voices or, you know, decide that. Or say they hear voices. That's the part. <laughs> <laughs> I still remember that line from the other week where that guy said, um, in terms of prayer and your relationship with God, yeah. it's, it's not a dialogue, it's a monologue. <laughs> so, um, but tolerance, I want to talk about this word. Oh, we're hearing it a lot, tolerance. And it's, oh, I might, well, two articles that I'm going to refer to. Have you heard about the chicken pox at uh, Brunswick Northwest Primary? Yes? A little bit. Yeah. So there's a school which uh, has been described as... Um, well, one in four of the children who attend this Brunswick school um, have contracted chickenpox. Hmm. And the school says um, it's got a policy that it respects the rights of every family to make choices about immunisation. Very tolerant of them. And uh, the Brunswick Northwest Primary School has called for parents to be tolerant of opposing views on vaccination. So... Um, they're calling, and then they also another point here. They go, we expect all community members to act respectfully and with tolerance when interacting with other parents and carers who may have a differing opinion to their own. This includes an opposing understanding about child immunisation. And this word tolerance is giving me the shits. <laughs> oh, that's very strong. There's a Christmas word. <laughs> People calling for tolerance are simply saying. We're not allowed to criticise. If, if you delete the word tolerance mm. and replace, um, you know, asking people to act respectfully and with tolerance, it means without criticism. I mm. think you're right, yeah, in this yeah, case. Yeah, absolutely. And, and mm. it's often the case that, um, that uh, this word tolerance is being used this way. Yeah. Another article on the website is um, oh, um, where this... Uh, an author and worldview and culture expert um, talks about these billboards that are appearing. There's a billboard in the United States oh, yeah, where yeah. They're, they're mocking Christianity and it's got a picture of Santa saying, um, go ahead and skip church, just be good for goodness sake. And of course, Christians are just in uproar mm. with this. They got and, bananas, don't they? And um, 
what, what they're saying is that it is disrespectful and intolerant of those with deeply held beliefs. There's that word tolerance. Yes. And another guy here says it's the epitome of intolerance. See, you can't use racism. No. Intolerance so you're looking is, for is the new bigoted. Dirty word, yeah. You're looking for bigoted and you're looking for tolerance. Yeah. Are the catchwords that, yeah. that people But of course use. that tolerance in the United States and I, I assume elsewhere only operates one way, doesn't it? The atheists have to be tolerant, but nobody has to be tolerant of the atheists. Yeah, that's right. It is a one-way street. Mm. But, um, but it's just a misuse of the word. And, and when they're calling for tolerance, what they're, asked, what they're really calling for is, is a, a lack of criticism. It's you sub- cannot criticize. Submission, I would argue. <laughs> you're not allowed to criticize. So, um, so when you hear the word tolerance bandied about on Q&A mm. or somewhere like that, mm. Just replace it with criticism and you'll be able to feel free to, to lash out and say whatever you like, I think, because people use it as a, as a derogatory term. You're intolerant. They do. They do. Which, it's it's which, like bigotry. You're a bigot. You're a racist. You're, you're intolerant. You're intolerant, which might just mean you're critical. And yeah. there's nothing wrong with being critical. Of course there's nothing wrong with being critical. I mean, it's, it's precisely being critical of... If we accept that the Reformation was the right thing for the Christian faith, it happened because you had preachers who were critical of the original teachings of the yeah. Holy Roman Church. Yeah, criticism from within the church. So yeah. Luther had a point. Oh, he did, he had yeah. a point to make and a very valid point to make, but yeah. the response may or may not have been the best one we could hope for, I would say. Hmm. So, um, so anyway, I'm uh, the word... Well, the accusation of intolerance is getting trotted out as regularly as the accusation of bigot. Mm. And um, I think it's a word that if if you're accused of being intolerant, wear it as a badge of honour because it simply means you've been critical. And good on you. Yeah. Uh, So that's tolerance. What's the word people use for the, uh, the, 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 the three aspects of God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost? The Trinity. The Trinity. We've got racism, bigotry, and intolerance. There you go, yes. yes. It's a Trinity. It's a kind of Trinity. Yes. It would be, yeah. Um, Gideons are active in Queensland. And I read your letter, Trevor. A lot of people don't know um, who the Gideons are. So, uh, if they're the you, mob that give you those little red books, aren't they? They are. Yeah. So if you're, you know, and they supply Bibles to hotels. Yeah, they do. And they have done for decades, haven't mm-hmm. they? For a very long time. They have. So if you're in a hotel and got a little drawer beside the bed, you open it up. <laughs> there'll be a there'll be a Bible there, and inside will be a stamp, you know, proudly supplied by the Gideons. Yeah. Or you'll be at a doctor's surgery waiting room or something. There'll be a Bible there for sure, supplied by the Gideons. Yeah. Uh, which you can leaf through and examine Leviticus at your leisure. <laughs> and uh, I, I love my local high school, the Gap High. It's a fantastic school. Kids went there. I love it. And I was appalled to find out that last week at school assembly, the Gideons were invited and allowed to appear at the school assembly they didn't speak, I believe, but somebody else spoke and said, the Gideons are here, they've got some Bibles, any of you are welcome to take one as a gift. In our state schools. What was the event, Trevor? 
It's just an assembly. Just a normal just school. Just assembly. a normal school assembly. You, you read my, my email? Yes. Related to that? Uh, the one that said you liked my letter? No? The one that said when I was a high school teacher at a certain high school that I worked at, the school chaplain invited a visiting American evangelist yes, I, yes, to visit going. the school. Yep. The whole school, the whole school, all class was suspended yes. for the purpose of herding all the students and staff into the school hall yep. to hear this American evangelist give a pep talk. Now, it was basically couched in the form of a pep talk to, to boost self-esteem among the students, mm. which is not a bad thing yeah. and I don't think any of us would argue that it's a bad thing to uh, you know give, give encourage students to, to feel good about themselves but it was basically a, a, a mask it was a subterfuge you know for inviting them to a big Christian rally mm. at I think it was Lang Park at the time yeah yeah and you know they were saying he was saying things like oh, I'm giving away giving away free tickets to this wonderful big event you know yes so, and some students were sucked in by it. I, I dare say some staff were sucked in by it. Yeah. Outside the school hall, as everybody filed in, there was tables set up and representatives of Gideons were there handing out little... I think they were only New Testaments rather than entire Bibles. I think that's right. their, their cheap option is to hand out New Testaments. But, right. um, but I, I was disturbed. You know, I didn't see it coming. I don't think it, was, um, it wasn't on any school calendar or as such mm. we were just all told oh there's this something on up at the school hall just take all your classes up everybody was herded up there and when I got there and saw what was happening and when I went into the hall and heard this guy speak and I you know I realized what he was really on about yeah. I was quite incensed but you know uh, you know mingling with other teachers after it they were full of praise virtually all the all the teachers that I spoke to were like Oh, wasn't he wonderful? You know, wasn't he good for the kids? You know, and this was a state school. This was yes, one of the suburban, one of the better suburban state schools. Yeah. And um, I, you know, it did cross my mind that I that I could go and talk to the principal and ask her mm. why valuable class time was being sacrificed mm. for this um, interloper mm. from America, whose agenda was clearly to convert people to Christianity. Yes. Um, but I decided against it because virtually everybody I spoke to thought it was such a wonderful thing yes. that this guy was, was such a charmer. I mean, he was a very good speaker. And he, yes. was, he was a gifted public speaker. Yes. He had the gift of the gap. And uh, I just, you know, didn't think. How many years ago was that? That would have been uh, in the late 1990s, early 2000s. Yeah, I wonder if people are more suspicious of these smooth-talking American evangelical yeah. people. I mean, I don't know. We hear so many more stories now of I, what they get up to. I wonder if people are more suspicious. I, I, over the several years I was at the school, I became aware that there were staff members, other teachers who were either very religious in a, in a Christian sense or were actually ex-missionaries. Right. Is that right? Yeah. Wow. That sounds like an exceptionally religious group there. I think it's just the nature of the teaching profession. You right. get you get a very wide cross section of the community in the in the te- you know of, mm. of philosophical outlook, outlooks mm. in the teaching profession simply because there are so many teachers. Mm. You know. 
Well, anyway, I fired off a letter to the principal quoting the uh, Education Act and regulations and <laughs> saying that, uh, in my humble opinion, it was breaching several of them and um, saying that I hope it doesn't happen again and sort of finished off with, you know, if it is going to happen again, I'd like to be told because I've got some friends who are uh, Muslim, uh, and Scientologists who are Pastafarians and uh, they would all like to come along and hand out their sacred texts at the same time. So, um, so, yeah, I think I'm going to have to go on to the PNC. I think I think there's a bit of a religious element there on that. There often is. Yes. yes, because they approved it and... Uh, there was stuff in the newsletter, but I made the point to the principal, well, you need written consent of the parents for this mm. and you need to offer an alternative activity for those who don't want to participate and none of that happened. So, so anyway, I haven't got a response yet, but, you know, end of school year, um, I'll chase that up in due course. <laughs> well, well, you get a response. I don't know. I know him quite well. You so, know him yeah, quite well, yeah, I do know the principal quite well. So, um, old drinking buddies. <laughs> no, but um, it's been very good to our family over the years. So, I, I know him quite well. Um, so, yeah, I'm sure I'll get a response at some okay. stage. Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. So, so there you are. If you're a Queenslander listening out there, uh, check whether your kids have been subjected to the Gideons at the mm. assembly in recent times, because that mm. shouldn't happen. Yeah. Look, I don't think many kids would look too deeply into the Gideons, frankly. Yeah. Kids see that sort of stuff as pretty boring on yeah. the whole. Yeah. But what troubled me was the, the evangelist uh, luring kids along to his uh, Christian rally. Yeah. I thought that was quite sinister. Yep. Previously, I have said how easy it is for us to declare war. Yes. Or, or if not declare war, just send troops. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, yeah, how so, easy is it, Trevor? Well, all it needs is a prime minister who wants to, yeah. and you can convince the cabinet and uh, those few handful of people decide to send troops. There's they all are sorts our of elected representatives, Trevor. By the way, but yeah, there's all but sorts of decisions that they can't get through the Houses of Parliament, like simple budgetary matters mm. the government still has not passed from Joe Hockey's budget. Good point. So simple things about money yeah. needs approval of Parliament, yet but not sending going to war. troops off to kill people and to put us at war with other people. Mm. To drop so, bombs on people. Yeah. yeah. So I stumbled across an article which was examining the UK, Australia and the US yeah. in relation to what happens in other countries. Yeah. And the UK, you know, the, the UK convention requires parliamentary approval. Mm. You know, that's something that when you read into it, you find out there's nothing written down mm. in the UK constitution or anything else saying that you must go through via this way, but it's mm. something that's evolved and they've developed and, mm. and grown into. So there's no reason why our lot shouldn't set up a, um, a basis for yes. And there are, there are some restraints on the American president as well. Oh, very much so, yes. Yeah, yeah the Americans have got the gold standard. Well, yeah. they've they got a section that says Congress shall have the power to declare war. Yes. They kind of get around it by just sending troops without declaring war. Yeah. <laughs> ah. In fact, police actions and that sort of stuff. Because yeah. despite all of the involvement by America since the Second World War. They've never declared war since Ever. the Second No, since the Second World War, they've never declared war. Very cunning. Yes. So um, 
So, so they get around it that way. But well, I do have to go through. Um, uh, lost it. Sorry. Keep going with Trevor. You're right. Um, I've got here. Obama's deployment of forces in Iraq and Syria against ICE reveals, reveals that the responsibility for the failure to obtain... Oh, OK. There's a yeah. convention about getting con- congressional approval. Approval, yes. But he kind of um, deployed forces and Congress didn't complain. No. So that's the thing about conventions is you've got to maintain them. So mm. in the UK case, you know, that convention is relatively recent. So... By 2011, that convention was established about requiring, you know, discussion in Parliament. Mm. But by the same token, if if over the next 50 years in the UK, the Prime Minister starts deploying forces without that debate and Parliament doesn't complain, then the convention disappears. So when you don't have things written down, so that seems to be what's happened in the, uh, in the US... But certainly in Australia, I think, obviously there might be times of emergency where something happens. Where most people would accept where it's Where you have to react so quickly. Yeah. But can't but even, think of an even, example. Something like 9-11 that, in yeah, the US. That was a, probably a case where people would accept the government needed to act immediately. But, but, yeah, but not but in deploying forces overseas. No, but... To a, an imminent threat. But, but that was kind of as a, um, you know, state of emergency type powers, mm. sure. Mm. But actually deploying forces, it's it's hard to, you know, okay, a, a battalion of, I don't know, there's a huge number of bombers heading our way. We need to send an aircraft to meet them halfway and to engage them. Mm. Fair enough. You don't have time to debate. But that hasn't happened. Yeah. So in all of these deployments, we've had ample time to just mm. stop and talk about it, and we have zero debate. It's mm. appalling. Mm. Mm. Such an important. No, issue. I agree with you. I mean, it's it's one of those it's one of those things that um, the the Greens, bless them, and that sort of stuff have they've carried over from the Democrats, where they've argued that it's something that should be bound by Parliament. Parliament should Wouldn't do it. Wouldn't you think? Mm. I mean, at, we elect representatives to make decisions for us. Yes. But yeah. even with, you know, you go back to that point you raised, Trevor, about an emergency situation where you must deploy troops in a certain set of circumstances, there would be nothing wrong with deploying troops in an emergency situation and then calling Parliament together to discuss why you've done it. Yes. And then get the approval and move on. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So it's, it's a very strange situation that we can just enter into hmm. such a critical decision yeah, without a debate. No debate, yeah, exactly. Hmm. It's it's really is it's very wrong. Yeah. Hmm. So it's government by cabinet rather than yes, and government we, by parliament. And, yeah, exactly. And almost by the Prime Minister. Yeah. I mean one of these articles that I've I've linked to here says um, we now learn from Peter Harch's series Shirt Fronted uh, in the Sydney Morning Herald that the basis of Abbott's decisions on these matters was just gut instinct. So, you know, you've got... Gut instinct? Yeah. It's hardly confidence-inspiring, is it? Mm. Well, no, it's not. And that's the thing that I find really disturbing was that you've got this situation that... It, by gut feel, he has deployed troops abroad. Yes. Oh, he hasn't deployed troops. He's deployed air force units abroad, but they are 
troops. Yeah. And yes. this man's gut feeling was that Prince Philip should get a knife. Yeah. Yeah. So there you go, folks. There's another one that if uh, on some fine day the secular party ever makes it into power, these are the sorts of great ideas, policy ideas that will bring to the table. It's such a simple thing. Yeah. Mm. Now, I love a quiz, as you know. (laughs) (laughs) We've been waiting for this. Yes, we have been waiting for this. And uh, listeners, you'll be pleased to know that we've got a few questions here for the boys. (laughs) And... um, Yes, so the quiz. Uh, creation. Now, uh, did trees come before Adam or did uh, the trees come after Adam? What did, uh, what did God create first? The trees were created before Adam. Twelfth man? I, I'm struggling, but I think, didn't he create all the animals and the plants and then he... He was lonely or bored and wanted somebody to talk to, so he created Adam. Is that how it went? Well, it's actually both. <laughs> uh, Genesis uh, 1, 11 to 12, and 1, 26 to 27, trees came before Adam. Oh. And Genesis 2, 4, 9, the trees came after Adam. Oh. So, uh, <laughs> Who wrote Genesis? <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Uh, look, there's also uh, birds... Some, some parts of Genesis before Adam, some say after. Animals, some say before Adam. Uh, other parts of Genesis say after. And um, Adam and Eve, which came first? Adam was first. Adam was first, yeah. Surely Adam was first. Mm, no, it's both. Oh. So Genesis 1, 26 to 27, Adam and Eve were created at the same time. No, up. couldn't yes. be. No? Because Adam was created out of clay yeah. and Eve was created yeah. out of one Adam of his uh, ribs. But you yes. see, you are reading Genesis 2 7 oh, and sorry. Genesis 2 21 22, where Adam was created first and woman sometime later. And what about Lilith? Lilith? Lilith. What's Lilith? Lilith was Adam's first wife. Before Eve. Now, according to some sections of the old uh, Jewish uh, scriptures. Right. Eve was preceded by a woman called Lilith. Now, Lilith was a bit uppity, didn't want to submit and be, you know, <laughs> under, under the control of Adam. She rebelled. Right. And she, so she was cast out or chased away or something. No. But she came back as a, as a kind of demon. Right. And she is depicted in old um, uh, sculptures. And there are some interesting examples. She's depicted as a half, half woman, half bird. She's got the feet of a bird. Right. And she flies around at night looking for uncircumcised baby boys. <laughs> I kid you not. <laughs> so, well, what does she just, do when she finds uncircumcised boys? Oh, she eats them or, I don't know. Right. I, I, I could be very crude right now, you know, putting <laughs> ideas into my head, but you know, you know what Jewish rabbis do, don't yeah, you? I, I do. Yes, yes well, we, yeah. have, we have discussed this. Yes, where, it's um, a bit unsavoury. Yes. Well, Lilith, I think she goes around, uh, you know, sucking the essential goodness out of young boys or something. Good I don't Lord. Know. And this is part of Jewish. It's uh, Jewish folklore. Yeah, the Christians, interestingly, have completely eliminated Lilith. She's been yes. she's been erased. Right. But look it up. She's a very interesting character. Lilith. 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 There we go. Let's have a look for that. And she's yeah. interestingly she's a bit of a uh, a cult figure for some feminists. Yeah, really? Because she was a rebel. She didn't 
submit to Adam. She stood stood up and said, "No, I'm your equal." And I think that's why the Christians have right. eliminated her. And she's the patron saint of first wives everywhere, by the sound of it. Maybe. <laughs> so, um, um, the, uh, the 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 story of Noah and Noah's Ark. Yes. Do you know how much of that was lifted from previous folklore of other traditions? Quite a bit, I Most would imagine. It, yeah. from, mm. um, the the uh, what was the old Mesopotamian uh, story? Well, I've got one here. It might be Mesopotamian, yeah. but much of the biblical flood story was actually plagiarised from the Epic of Gilgamesh. That's it. The mythical Sumerian account. Yes. Written on stone tablets around 2000 BC. In the Epic of Gilgamesh, one righteous man was spared from a worldwide flood by building a large boat with a single door and one window. The ark contained a few other human beings plus plant and animal specimens. Rains covered the mountains with water. Birds were sent to find land. The boat landed on a mountain in the Middle East. Mm. Uh, This guy sacrificed an animal as an offering and Babylonian gods expressed regret for flooding the earth. Mm. Does that sound familiar? It sounds familiar. I mean, I I, I came across this quite a few years ago and I'm I'm sure it's fairly well known among people who do take an interest in matters religious and biblical. But yeah, it's fairly well known that those stories were stolen by Jews from earlier civilizations. Mm. Mm. Uh, On Christmas theme, Jesus. Was Jesus born in a house or a manger? Born in a manger. In a stable, wasn't it? Mm. Yeah. Matthew 2.11, on coming to the house. So uh, in that one it was a house. But in Luke 2.7 it was a manger and there was no room at the inn. But a manger is just like a a thing that they put food in for livestock. It's just like a feed box or something, isn't it? Yes, but in Matthew he was in a house. Yeah, well. Yeah. Shepherds or or three wise men? Oh, uh, which ones came to meet Three wise him? shepherds. <laughs> yeah. Um, three wise men came to meet him. Yes. In Ma- well, that, you were in reading Matthew. Okay. <laughs> Come on. Scott, uh, get with the, it. The read, Magi, the, read the correct version. They were astronomers okay. and astrologers. However, Luke uh, 2.15, they were shepherds. Oh. Yeah. And, and they um, brought gifts. Gold, myrrh and frankincense. Gold, frankincense and myrrh. Did Mary and Joseph flee to safety? Um, after Christ was born, mm. they did flee to safety. Mm. Where did they go? To Egypt? Egypt, I believe. Yeah. That was my thought. Yes. So you've been reading Matthew again. <laughs> Sorry. And you really need to read more of Luke. Oh. <laughs> because, yes, under Matthew, they fled to Egypt until Herod's death. Um, but in Luke's account, the Christ child was presented and Mary and Joseph returned to Nazareth. There is no mention of Herod's decree or a flight to Egypt for safety. Mm. So, um, now, interesting, the birth story. We mentioned before how Noah's Ark was so reminiscent of an earlier Mm. tale. So, uh, to finish off with our Christmas theme, the Jesus story is hardly original, much of it copied from other earlier myths. Hercules had a prophesied birth, a divine father and a mortal mother, and at the end of his life, uttered the words, it is finished, before ascending to Olympus. Mm. Osiris was born of a virgin, was hailed as a king, rose from the grave and went to heaven. Mm. The early Romans had the pagan god Attis, born December 25th, 
crucified and rising again on a Sunday 200 years before the story of Christ. Dionysus, the Greek god and son of Zeus, was also born on the 25th of December of a virgin mother, healed the sick, turned water to wine, and was resurrected from death to save mankind. History is full of incredible coincidences. Yeah, it's amazing. Isn't yes, it? yeah. just amazing. So, uh, so the story gets repeated. So there you go. There's the uh, Bible study from the Iron Fist Velvet Glove for this week. Excellent. Thank you for that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> With meaning Thanks. next time, 12 men. Thanks for the quiz too. Uh, really, Let's enjoy the quiz. Religious psychosis. This is of interest to you. Yes, it was. Yeah. Really very interesting Talk when you, when you read into it. Um, it yeah. manifests as a psychosis. I'm, I'm not personally, you know, could, I, I wouldn't go around saying that religious people are crazy. I just think that they... Ooh, I think some of their beliefs are a little bit crazy. I, I just think they're uninformed, personally. I just think they haven't had a, a decent education. Yeah... Yeah, I mean, there's there's that, but when you look at some of the better schools in the in the country, they are run by the churches and that sort of stuff. So. I still don't think they educate the children uh, in, properly in history, and I think history should include mythology. Yeah. I mean, to to help young people be able to differentiate between true factual history and mythology, because yeah. there is a lot of crossover. Yeah, fair enough. Particularly in religious circles. Well, well, this article that we've linked to uh, says, yes, ignorance, but saying it's a a result of intellectual indolence, meaning the information is there. Yeah, but they just can't be bothered. People are just abdicating, using their minds, and are basically uh, just uh, delegating Mm. that part of their life to some priest figure or whatever perhaps in a way um you know our our contemporaries prefer to get their information about the world from the evening news rather than sit down and actually you know read an in-depth article Mm. about something that's happening you know they'll take the little two minute grabs on the evening news bulletin and that's all they need that's a similar sort of indolence isn't it it is i mean you, you can see that on our facebook page um Dear listeners, if you've been watching the Secular Party Facebook page recently, um, the 12th man's had a hand in quite a lot of recent posts. But if you post something that's short and pithy and doesn't require much reading, Mm. it gets shared and reposted and liked so much more than than an academic article that requires people to stop and read. And spend time on it. Even amongst, you know, the secular party followers, um, yeah. It's true, though, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. yeah. We, we, wa- we want everything pre-digested. We do. So, so this article talking about the psychosis of religion um, did talk about, unfortunately, a great proportion of humanity... Um, the ignorance is forced on them. They don't have the opportunity to learn, but mm. then accuses others of of intellectual indolence because they've like simply, word, yeah, yeah, simply refused, you know, decided not to bother. And um, uh, talks about um, a few other ideas that were interesting, uh, and the way that these just get ignored by people. And in part two of that kind of basically came to the conclusion that 
information at the end of the day will surely win the battle. Yeah, and... But, but I don't know. No, that's yeah. a bit optimistic, yes. isn't it, really? I mean, that, is that right? Was that the conclusion in part two of the article? Was, yeah. was it That was the conclusion, was yes. that, that the information would win out in the end. Yeah. However, you know, I, I like, if I may... Yes. We can never be moral by the words written in our holy texts alone, for within the confines of those pages exists some of the most horrific and ruthless acts humankind has ever imagined, and we will immortalise those holy nightmares when we insist on insist that our human principles must remain rooted in those verses. And that is bang on the money. Mm. You know, it really is. So when you read, when you know, in, in the article there is a whole... Yeah, a good two-thirds of a page that goes through mm-hmm. the Old Testament and that sort of stuff saying, you know, what you should and shouldn't do to women and so on and so forth. So it really is a very good article. Mm-hmm. So yeah. thank you for the, f- the final paragraph. He, uh, whoever, the author writes, much of humanity is asleep. Yes. yes. Now, do you recall Barry Jones, our ex-minister for science? He, he published a book some years ago called... Uh, sleepers awake or something to that effect and he was basically making a similar claim about well I haven't read it so I I can't say what it was about exactly but I think the inference was that a lot of people just are indolent in, in, in in as much as they're only getting part of the picture of what's going on in the world yes. because either they've been you know their senses their intellect has been dulled on a in a heavy diet of you know, junk TV and and fast news. Yes. And uh, most people are sort of only partially awake. And I think that he meant in the intellectual sense. Mm. And I think there's a lot of truth in that. And this guy seems to make a similar point. Yeah. yeah. Well, well, makes the point um, that people are indolent. But then in the conclusion says that, you know, at the end of the day, information is going to win. But when you've already admitted that some people have... Have been um, exposed to the information and just choose not to look at it, mm. then you have to worry. The other thing I worry about is, you know, uh, powerful elements get in control of the information and only allow the population to hear the bits that they want yeah. them to hear. Yeah. Yeah, so true. you've only got to look at Fox News in America as the classic example of that. Mm. I saw figures recently, and I don't recall the precise figures, but they said that if you go back to the middle of the 20th century in the United States, there were literally dozens of media companies, Mm. and now there are like six or eight or something like that. Mm. And they've just grown and they've gobbled up all the smaller ones. Mm. I mean, there literally used to be dozens and dozens of media companies and independent yep. uh, media outlets, newspapers mainly, I would assume, but also mm. television stations. They've all been swallowed up by like something like half a dozen yep. big companies. And even within those, the various branches would have been quite autonomous yes. in making their own decisions and having their own policy. Exactly. And Rupert Murdoch is the master of controlling a large organisation. We shouldn't blame him because the Americans were doing it before he arrived on the scene. Oh, yes, but not to, not to the extent that oh, he has. Yeah, look, he's... He, he's, he's got it he, all. He is the master. He's the master. I mean, he is the one who looks at every editorial and every newspaper in his empire yeah. every day and rings up the editors yeah. and says, what are you doing running that line? That's not my policy or mm. ideology. 
do that again, th- you'll find. I think he's following yeah. basically an American model. So, you know, an American corporate model. Oh, he wrote the model, Rich Murdoch. <laughs> he did. He did. Yeah, I don't know about that. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm certain of it. I, yes. Okay. I mean, he's gone from a small suburban newspaper yeah. in Australia yeah. to the biggest media player in the world. He and, had some help, you know. He, he, his father had the, had the newspaper before him, didn't yes. he? Yes, but, I mean, he took essentially a small Australian media mm. Yeah, and then business, created a global, created a global empire. empire. He, he wrote He's the book well. it's done. And part of that was total control at every point of, mm. you know, right down into the roots of the organisation. And yet when people who work for the Australian, for example, are asked this question... They almost invariably say, particularly at the editor level, invariably say, oh, come on, as if Rupert Murdoch, you know, calls me up and tells me what to write. (laughs) Are they current employees or ex-employees? Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. 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 So when you speak the ones who have been sacked, you'll get a different story. So even he would admit, like, there's been interesting documentaries on him and, you know, they show footage of him ringing up editors oh, really? and abusing them so and really. and they clearly are shaking in their boots and and um, everything from the looks of the page three girl to where the crossword puzzle is placed he is he's very very detailed mm-hmm. oriented yeah. and so so yeah so his own personal agenda has been mm. expanded um the word when the uh, graph goes exponentially. exponentially. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Dollar Glove. No and, and yet he employs, you know, uh, would you say a few token lefties like Philip Adams, yes. who doesn't hold back in his criticism, yes. does he, of anybody really? Yes. Although he sacked Philip Adams a couple of times, but he gets rehired. And rehired <laughs> oh, yeah, in different, for different publications and things. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. So, um, so, um, so yeah, I, I, and the. The other point is, so that's in America, but then you've got... It's worse in Australia, isn't uh, it? Well... If anything. Well, I've got, I was going to go to the Middle East. Like, we've got the problem, which we touched on briefly. Well, I'll just wait till he goes. Yeah. What are we at? Uh, 57.25. We're back, and the next-door neighbour <laughs> with, uh, with the V8 has finally uh, charged off... Uh, in the direction of the western suburbs <laughs> and uh, hopefully he'll do a few circuits out there and won't return for a little while so uh, <laughs> so but where I was uh, information people get it okay they'll change problem in America but also in the Middle East like the people in the Middle East are being bombarded in their media with all sorts of anti-Jewish sentiment, anti-Western sentiment. What's become known as hate speech, yes. is that what it is? Yes. So um, so while in the Western world we might think oh, everyone's getting more information mm. and as people get more information you know, religious psychosis but are they is really going to... getting it, yes. Yeah. Because we're looking through the prism of, of, of the Western world, aren't we? Mm. We are. So we might think that our access to information is, is compromised, severely compromised, but it's relatively open and free-flowing in comparison to some parts of the world, isn't it? Yeah, and, you know, it, it, that article did make the point that there was a... Well, I mean, exactly as you're saying, you know, that there, that there are some people that 
don't have access to the information because it's cut off from them. Mm-hmm. And you're right. I mean, the Middle East is outside of Israel. It, it's bloody disgraceful. Mm. Yes. You know, what's actually written uh, in daily papers. It's incredible. Yes. What about yeah. Al Jazeera? What do you make of Al Jazeera? Because they, at least on the surface, seem to make attempts to be uh, objective and critical. I don't know enough about them. Mm. Just, I, I sometimes watch studies. the broadcasts. Uh, in the early hours on ABC TV, they right. switched to Al Jazeera okay. early in the morning, yeah. Right. Um, so this topic is relevant to another article which was basically uh, looking at Germany and the, you know, the huge number of Syrian asylum seekers that have entered the country and uh, they've been indoctrinated with a pretty heavy dose of anti-Semitism. Oh, the Syrians. Yes. yes. And not their fault. Like, that just happens to be the media that they've been subjected to. And historically, Syria has been one of the biggest um, opponents of Israel. Yes. And the people who are now arriving in Germany, you know, their parents would have fought in some of those wars. Yes. The, uh, the, the one you mentioned. The, the, the Six-Day War, the Yom Kippur War. Yes, yes. Yeah. that you mentioned the other week. Yeah. And... Um, and so this article is making the point that Germany's tried really hard to deal with anti-Semitism mm. and it's absorbed East Germany, which still had a, a fairly significant anti-Semitic element in it. Mm. And now it's going to be taking in a huge number of people who, who are of the firm belief that <laughs> the Jews are bad people and Israel's a bad idea and if the whole place was bombed that would be a great result and they're now living in Germany which has worked really hard to overcome and you know it's Paul you've said it before but you've said um, that you you think Merkel will rue the day she made that I believe um, she will you know that she she made that offer of taking a million people in just give them, you know, five years, ten years at the most, and uh, they're going to be dealing with the consequences of yeah. it. And, you know, that sounds very unsympathetic, considering the, you know, the, the horrific scenes that, you know, have been presented to all of us on television. Of course, about but... Them. And, we, and we all, uh, you know, feel sympathy <coughs> for those people, but... But what, what, it comes back to something that I said a few weeks back or a few months ago when we were talking about the Hajj. You know, they've got tent cities there that are capable of housing three and a half million people. But they're not to be used but for they're refugees. They're not to be used for yeah. refugees. Now, that's incredible. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And, and it's like you said at the time, these are the ducks, nuts of, yeah. of tents. These aren't just... They're luxury tents. They're luxury yeah, tents, air conditioning, yeah. the full works. But I think the point Trevor is making, obviously, is that um, these people are going into a you know, relatively secular society in Europe and they're not of the disposition where they just abandon their cultural norms and their... You know, their worldview that you're alluding to mm. about in relation to Israel... 
Now, the Germans actually have laws, fairly strict laws, against Holocaust denial mm -hmm. and, 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 as you said, anti-Semitism. So there's going to be a bit of a clash happening there, mm. and I would say relatively soon. You remember, Trevor, the discussion we had about the, the sociological research in Denmark. Yes. Where they found part of the, part of the problem with uh, young uh, Muslim youths getting into trouble with the law was that their, their whole approach to, to, to trouble and to, to, to confrontation was don't back down at any cost. That aggression is a strategy. Yes. Yes, it wasn't to be ashamed of losing no. your temper. In fact, not being aggressive was a shameful yes. thing for them. If and, and losing your temper was an argument in itself. That's right. Yes. yes. Scary. It is. So this article basically says that Germany is going to be facing a choice of either a hard um, integration or, a, or an easy integration. And the hard integration would be for... German intellectuals, scholars and politicians to teach incoming migrants of the importance of Germany's tradition of facing the Nazi past honestly mm. um, and insisting that most of what the Syrians have heard from their own government over many decades about Israel, the United States, West Germany, Zionism and the Jews is false. Mm. So that's the hard one mm. is, to, is to confront these, their beliefs and tell yeah. them You've tried to change your mind. That's right. And, and not only that, but it's an honourable and a positive and a constructive thing yes. to reflect on your own culture and your own beliefs. And it just, you know, yes. do, they, do, they, do they come up looking good or not? You yes. Know? And, of course, the other option was the easy path, which is just to do nothing and be silent and avoid the topic and, um, and uh, you know, see what happens, mm. but that could lead to the growth again in Germany of anti-Semitism. Mm. Yeah, and not only anti-Semitism could be the growth of anti-Germanism. You know, anti-European-Europeanism, <laughs> or, or mm. however you want to put it. You know what I mean? Uh, I mean, my my f fear is that these uh, immigrants will form ghettos, will form their own communities, because as we know, they, they are often quite insular. And, and of course, they're not all. And there are some Muslims who are, would be more than happy to secularise, to become European, to become truly European. But there's going to be an awful lot of them who will, you know, uh, form ghettos and form their own little uh, parallel cultures, parallel societies within Germany, which will be in uh, con conflict in some respects with German cultural and social and legal norms. Mm. Well, I hope you're wrong. I hope I'm wrong too. <laughs> I do hope you're wrong. I hope I'm wrong too. Mm. David Marr. Yes, didn't he go to town? Mm. So yeah. He's a well-known Australian journalist. And he's good value. I, yes. I, yeah. I always find him worth listening to. Absolutely. And so, worth reading. Yeah, he's obviously gay. Did you yeah, he's gay, yeah. Mm. yeah he, he oh, he's went, quite mm. open about it. Yeah, mm. he, he went to town. He had, a, uh, he had a recently, in The Guardian, he came out and he said... The power of the hard men of God is one of the greatest political puzzles of this country. They are the only opponents on equal marriage. And he's right. They are, they are the only opponents to marriage equality. Yep. And 
for God knows why, yeah. you know. And they don't remotely have the numbers, but no. they've log-jammed reform. Exactly, that's yeah. The, that's the puzzle. Yeah. Well, I mean, you go back to Neville Rand's day. He, he's got the point here. He said, Neville Rand, an atheist premier with a fat majority, shilly-shallied over the change for the best part of a decade. He could count absolutely on the people in New South Wales. The support for decriminalising homosexuality was never in doubt, but he feared humiliation at the hands of his caucus. Yes. Yeah, so it's, what was it with the caucus that, uh, the that it was stacked caucus, with Catholics? Well, presumably, yeah. You know, um, I, 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 if I've got my history right, then the Catholics used to have a fairly strong hold over the Labor Party. And presumably that's where it was all coming from, was that and you that still was had... part of the big split in yeah, the 50s, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, well, the DLP was split from the ALP and that sort mm. of stuff, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, uh, so he makes the point that um, the, the <coughs> politicians are, are terrified of, uh, of, the, of, the, of the Catholic Church leaders and uh, says grappling with churches is the, about the most distasteful contest that politicians can imagine. Yeah, which I find really disturbing that... Um, yeah, I, I find that bizarre mm. because you've got that situation where you've... You know, well, we, we had it, uh, Paul, remember when we were doing the podcast the first time when um, Trevor was abroad, when we were talking through the results of the, uh, that survey that we'd helped fund and that sort of stuff. And they came out and 84% of Catholics don't do what the church tells them yeah. to. You know, it, it's, it's madness, yes. actually. It really is. It, it's crazy yeah. that the that the church leadership has got such control over, yeah. over the population. But, but look, if you, if you look at... Um, uh, Italy, for example. Yeah. What's the uh, average fertility rate of Italian women? Well, I don't know. I think it's less than replacement. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. Which shows you that while people, Italian people, may, you know, publicly say that they're good Catholics and you know they support the institution, privately in their bedrooms, mm. they're ignoring what the priests are telling them. Yeah. Mm which is not a bad thing, I would argue. Well, it's not. No, it's not a bad so thing at all. So it makes you wonder why, in Australia, the politicians are in such fear of the established churches. Do, mm. they, do the churches really exert the influence that people assume they do? I, I don't think they do, but I think well, part of the problem is that a huge proportion of our Conservative government's cabinet is Catholic. Is it? Yes. So something like 40%, I think it was. Oh, was it, really what it, was, yeah, it, yeah. Was, it was a fairly large number. But numbers. Scott Morrison is a... Um, no, he's, yeah. 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 Yes, he's Hillsong. Hillsong, Hillsong. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Which is, in some respects, a much bigger worry than Catholicism. Yeah. Yes. Um, there was one line in here I liked from David Marr where he was, um, uh, he was saying that these... Um, uh, the God's warriors say that the abuse that they're facing about gay marriage is forcing them into the shadows mm. and he makes the point that men who might once have faced lines for their faith are now whinging about ridicule <laughs> isn't that ironic yes it's about time they manned up a bit they need it? to man up that's yeah, right they do. oh trying to say something we might be ridiculed yeah I mean look you know David Mars right in his final paragraph here he says equal marriage will happen there are right there there are more rounds to fight but even the most hardline contenders know it will happen God's work 
God's work is in the delay in making the change as painful as possible. Mm. So, you know, it, it's like I said to you some time ago when we first heard that we were going to have a plebiscite on the issue. You know, I said it was going to be bruising and all that sort of stuff, but it will be it will be carried in the end. Yes, yeah. Um, I've mentioned before that for my sins, I subscribe to the Bible Society. <laughs> Seriously? Yes. <laughs> well, you know, you don't want your inbox full of atheist and secular <laughs> pro material. You've, you've got to yeah. look at what the I others are doing. it helps you construct your weekly quiz. Yeah. You? <laughs> it does. Exactly. But I was listening when I, when I, when I read this. I just, well, the, well, the headline. You, yeah, you, you just, I just shook my head when I read the headline. Sorry, so do the, go on. The headline, yes. of course, got me. Um, global warming is caused by sin. We need to trust and obey. And that was the headline of the article. And this is an article written by Thea Ormerod, who is the president of the Australian Religious Response to Climate Change. Huh? Some organisation is called the Australian Religious Response to Climate Change. They've got their fingers in every little pie, haven't they? They've, They've even got a religious response to climate change. Well, they're motivated, and I suppose when they feel that their position is under threat, they're motivated to do something about it, unlike a lot of more or less secular citizens who basically say life's good I'm kicking back yeah. you know I they're think motivated about, That's they're why motivated they for control and they see this as an issue when they well, want they to be feel in. under threat yes. and see this is something I mentioned I think to you last time Trevor was that uh, scholars who've analysed uh, religious fundamentalism they say it's basically a, it's a reaction to modernism yes yes they feel that their belief their whole belief system is under threat. Yes, when, from when confronted with threat, then you would you would actually increase your yeah. fundamentalism. Yes, yes. The triple threat of Darwin, yeah. Marx, and Freud right. are often <laughs> cited by religious fundamentalists yes. as the you know the beginning of the end. Anyway, in this article, uh, this um, person, the president of the Australian Religious Response to Climate Change, makes the point that uh, the bishops and other Christian leaders accept the consensus about climate change. But, uh, you know, one of the lines here is, our only true refuge is not in denying the truth, but to trust in God's providence. Yeah, I had that. Um, it's a bit Allahu Akbar. Climate change, isn't it? Climate change is an outcome of humanity's not heeding Jesus's calls to live simply and to care for one another. Oh, of course. Yeah. Why didn't we see that? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Apparently, we're supposed to all go back and live in the dark ages. Yes. Yes. And then just makes the point. Um, while I sincerely hope we are not precipitating the end times, oh dear. I recall Revelations 11.18. The nations were angry and your wrath has come, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> I can't bring myself to read the whole thing. Um, I'll read it if you like. The time has come to judging the dead and the rewarding your servants and the prophets and your saints and those who, those who reverence your name, both small and great, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. Mm. <laughs> you know, like, while I sincerely hope we are not precipitating the end times, well, A, 
isn't the end times what it's all about anyway? Well, like it's, it is for some. It's a big branch yeah. of Christianity refers to the rapture. Yeah. And they can't wait for the rapture. Exactly. So, yeah. so you know, what sort of Christian is this person? Like, <laughs> honestly, here's the chance. God's, why would you not precipitate the end time? Why yeah. wouldn't you? Yes, exactly. Because surely what comes after life yeah. is, is the... Paradise. The, yeah, that's the main game, isn't yes. it? Yes. And this, this was something that was raised when Sarah Palin was uh, uh, McCain's running mate for the US presidency. Yes. Because she's apparently of that uh, inclination that yes. thinks the end times will begin with a war in the Middle East. Right. Yeah. She's the one who was an expert on Russia because she, she could see it from her porch in yes, Alaska. Yes, that's right. That's, yes. right. that's right. Even though she was yes. on the south coast of Alaska, which is nowhere near Russia. <laughs> so... Um, so there we go. I'll have to um, keep up my subscription to the Bible Society and there sure. might be more from the president of the Australian Religious Response to Climate Change. And of course, Ronald Reagan had an interior secretary who was of a similar Christian inclination. Right. And he, when, when he was asked why he didn't do more to preserve the, the, the natural splendour of the United States, he yes. said... Well, you know, after Jesus returns, it'll all be remade anyway, so we can just cut all the forests down, dig up all the whatever, mm. because it doesn't really matter. After the second coming, it'll all be renewed. Mm. There, there are studies have shown that religious belief in the rapture yeah. um, does lead to sort of a climate change denial mm. or an unwillingness to even do anything about yes. it yeah mm. um which makes That's sense if you are going to have faith in that yeah. then you would go well what the heck yeah. yeah and people make the point about uh islamists too you know particularly the, the violent islamists is they they don't care about death for them death is completely trivial because it's what comes after death that counts but no 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 tough man they're godless According to our Prime Minister. <laughs> Sorry, I they're, forgot. They're godless. <laughs> yes. But it's really true, isn't it? And, it, and, and look, I, it, it gives me the willies when I hear some of my, my Western friends who've, who've travelled or, you know, been working in the Middle East and come back and they say to each other, Inshallah. Right. Which means, you know, it's all in God's hands. It's right. all up to God. Whatever happens. Yes. You know, it's the ultimate fatalism that it doesn't matter what you do. You don't have to take responsibility for your life because it's all up to God. Yes. And this is part of the, the problem with uh, fundamental Islam is mm -hmm. that... And, and apparently this, this carries over into everyday attitudes of a lot of Muslim people. Well, a lot of Christians too. A lot of Christians too. Mm -hmm. But it seems to be particularly ingrained in the, in the, in the Muslim uh, cultures... Mm -hmm that it doesn't really matter what you do because it's all up to God. Mm. It's all absolutely under control and dictated by God. We're going to come back to Muslims. Oh, yeah. could we? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but first, uh, you know, you read these sort of agony art type uh, letters, no, people seeking yes. relationship advice. Yes. Well, well, we've received one. Here. Have we? Yes. Mm. So I'd like to read it to you. Do you think we could set up our own secular agony art column well, well, on a permanent basis? Well, we might have to. We'll see how we go with this one, if we can help out this person and um, <laughs> see how we go. And we might, it might be something that we take on. So. Here we go. I need some advice. They're writing to us. 
I have a friend that is one of the sweetest, most intelligent people you could ever hope to meet. Every day when she wakes up, she begins her task of doing everything that her man tells her to do so he doesn't beat the crap out of her. <laughs> he is constantly berating her and telling her that she doesn't deserve him or the love he gives her. He gives her vague instructions each day, but then he gets angry when she doesn't do what he wants the way he wants it done. She constantly finds him spying on her as she goes about her day and she lives in fear of being punished in case she does anything that will anger him. Despite the fact that he is very wealthy, he makes her give him a tenth of the money that she makes and he blows it on stupid stuff just to rub it in her face. She is only allowed to maintain friendships with the people that he approves of and has to shut out everyone else, even if they are close family members. Every night she has to get down on her knees and tell him how thankful she is for him. Sounds terrible, doesn't it? It goes on. It is truly sad and I don't know how to help her because she's convinced she deserves to be treated like this and I know she doesn't. How do you get through to a person that's in an abusive relationship so they finally decide that their personal well-being is more important than making someone else happy? Mm. I tried to help her find some self-confidence, but all she does is get mad at me and defends him, saying things like, but I love him and he loves me. Mm. Or, sometimes I don't know why he makes me do certain things, but I trust him because he only wants the best for me and wants to take care of me. What can I do to help her get out of this abusive relationship and finally start living a life that she chooses and will make her happy? Please don't spread this around too far. Her, her guy's name is God, and I don't want her to have to push me away for even questioning <laughs> that her life needs to change or that he isn't always correct. <laughs> nice one, Trevor. <laughs> Any advice? Uh, yeah, she should leave the church. Right. <laughs> leave, leave God. Yeah. An abusive relationship. Yeah. 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 It's it's bizarre to me why women um, subject themselves to the uh, subjugation, the rules that that, that, are, that are put over them. It's incredible. So. Yeah. There we go. It's pathological inferiority complex of sorts, isn't it? Yes. Where the women, where the, the women and the men, for that matter, but yes. the women especially feel that, uh, yeah, that's all they deserve in mm. life. Mm. So anyway, I like that one. Back to Muslims. <laughs> 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 I knew you wanted to talk me in. Uh, you came up with an article, I think, about Muslims have hit their wall. Is that you who came up with that one? Possibly. Um, I thought this was interesting. It was written by a well, Muslim lady who was very well educated, medical doctor, I believe, living in the West, and basically describing her appearance. Is that VA engine back again? Yeah, he's back. He's, he's, he's gone to the Western suburbs, he's done his circuit, and he's, he's back again. So, this woman was well-educated, living in the American Midwest, and she says, I went deep into the Midwest, wore a hijab for a year, and lived there for eight years. In that time, I attended gatherings, met with educated professional people like myself, who were also asking the same questions about Islam. They were looking to their faith for answers, and sure, there were efforts made to modernise Islam, but they are only superficial. We couldn't do it. We couldn't do it because there's a logical dilemma at the core of Islam, and that is the Quran is the last word of God, 
that it is perfect and unchangeable. Uh, and even to suggest such a thing is blasphemy and apostasy. Yeah, and that is the problem that they're going to come up against with any of the efforts to modernise it or anything else. They can't change the book, so they're stuck with it. Yeah. Educated, well-meaning person looking at stuff saying it's crazy, can't even talk about it. Yeah. And that's our job, isn't it? We're here talking about it. I guess the only, others fear to. I, I guess the choice is... The, well, I guess the answer is you just have to leave. Like, you can't... You're not going to change Islam, I don't think. Well, either that or they're going to have to... Um, attend mosques and that sort of stuff that are very liberal. Mm-hmm. You know, um... I don't know whether or not they exist, yeah. but I would imagine that they probably do. That yeah. there probably are some liberal mosques. Yeah. Like, like we, what is it? There's reformed Judaism. Yes. yes. So Several what we branches. need is reformed Islam. Yes. Of sorts. It's going to be very difficult when you can't. And I think it's going to be a very long and sl- and hard path yeah. that they're going to take. But she makes this point that living as a Muslim in the Midwest was a um, was a bad option uh, she says I was raised in a Muslim country in the Middle East and religion was something we kept in its place somewhere after school after soccer and after cartoons but here in the West it was a more distilled pure and most dangerously a context free Islam there were no grandmothers here to sagely tell us which parts of the Quran to turn a blind eye to mm-hmm. There were no older cousins here who skipped Friday prayers and goofed off with their friends instead. Mm-hmm. Oh no, the Islam simmered into a source of Midwestern sincerity mm-hmm. uh, and boiled down to its dark, concentrated core. And this was dangerous. Like, you can see that would be the case. Yeah. And it's, it's part of the complex of identity politics, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Where people who feel that they are different you know, as, as, as immigrants to a Western country. It's, it's part of how they, uh, what would you say, create for themselves an identity in the new home, isn't yes, it? Yes. By distilling their religion and saying this is an essential part of, it, of what we are. Yes, and there's an interesting feature of uh, teenage rebellion here. Um, I'll read this next section. As my children grew older, I grew more afraid. I had tolerated their father's insistence on sending them to Sunday school, where mostly they played and learned a few surah. But as they grew older, I knew it would change, and a sincerity would creep into their gaze. Um, Teenage rebellion would find just cause in judging your less religious parents Mm. as wanting and inferior bad Muslims. How many teenagers have started to wear hijab before their own mothers? I've lost count. Mothers who found themselves in this dilemma would choose to join their child on this journey. They would cover two Mm. and uh, offer a layer of protection from the ideology by offering perspective. So the kids were actually... In in a similar way to perhaps when, when we were young, we thought we knew so much more about the world than our parents. Yes. I mean, I don't know about you, but I certainly did. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yes. And, and it's an interesting point, isn't it? An interesting angle that, that young people do at some point reach, you know, where they, they feel that they've got a better grasp on, on what's really happening in the world than their parents. And Islam being something they can grab onto, yep. it becomes a focal point. Mm. 
to differentiate themselves not only from their parents but from their peers who are not yeah, not, yeah. not Muslims. So it was really an, an, an examination of how you would think, in theory, take Muslim people, put them in a Western country, mm. gradually the Islam would be watered down a bit. No. But the opposite yeah. is actually yeah. is the That's tale that she's telling. Yeah. And you could see how it could happen. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Because like she said, you're in a, um, you, you don't have older older siblings that bunked off Friday yeah. prayers yeah. and all that yeah. sort of stuff. So, yeah. yeah. And not only that, but, you know, the, the, the mass media is feeding these young people the idea that they are disadvantaged, that they are discriminated against. And, yes. and maybe there's some element of truth in that in some places, certainly. But, you know, when they're, when they're told by everybody else that they're at a social disadvantage, you know, that they're being discriminated against, yeah. then surely they would reach out for something to grab onto. Like this unfortunate young man in Parramatta who shot that accountant at the Parramatta police station you know yeah. he was 15 for goodness mm. sake you know mm. I mean how naive and innocent he probably was yes. you know yeah. and he just unfortunately came under the influence of some slightly older boys yes. who felt that they had the answers to all their problems yes you need just a charismatic character can get a lot done through other people mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. true tragic um we, I've said we should try and have some good news stories rather than just slagging off at religion every opportunity. We should try and promote positive ideas. Mm-hmm. And so my good news story is just a link to an interview with a guy called Connor Robson from the Humanist Service Corps. Mm. And they're basically a charity that yeah. operates in poor countries and read that at your leisure and if Mm. you're looking to donate money to a cause sounds a worthy one the part that i really liked about this was they said well what distinguishes the humanist approach to such service projects from other ones and his response was they emphasize that whatever they do they're looking for long-term sustainability and empowerment over immediate impact Mm. and what they do is they identify local people at the grassroots level who they can work with Mm. and they work with them to help them help the community Mm. so rather than coming in and saying well we know everything and you need a big concrete toilet block over there and that's what we're going to give you Mm. they um work with the local people and Mm. um and empower them and then that's something that they can do on ongoing and is also obviously accepted by the community mm. and it's obviously going to be something the community wants rather than something that's foisted upon them so i thought that was pretty good yeah mm. absolutely i came across a similar thing in india some months ago mm-hmm. and i think it was i think it was actually something set up by by an indian man and uh, non-religious you know not connected to any particular religious elements and uh, he was doing a similar thing just mm-hmm. trying to set up self-empowering projects mm-hmm. in some parts of India mm-hmm. which I thought was admirable mm. um, next up we've got uh, Malcolm well so Tony Abbott made some comments that we've already talked about yeah. and Malcolm Turnbull was asked to respond 
because the Indonesian Prime Minister was not happy with Tony Abbott's words. Never was. And Malcolm Turnbull said, Australia need only look to its closest neighbour, Indonesia, to see that most Muslims are strongly opposed to extremism. Indonesia demonstrates that Islam is compatible with both democracy and an open, tolerant society. The extremism of ISIL or Daesh is utterly rejected by the leaders of the majority of Muslim nations. So basically Malcolm Turnbull saying that Indonesia is an example where they are strongly opposed to extremism. Well, yeah, well, uh, yeah. And I find that bizarre. Well, the fortunate thing is we've got statistics. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and Malcolm obviously doesn't. <laughs> Or he hasn't looked at the, the statistics because uh, factually he's incorrect. Well, well, he might just make it if he talks about the majority. Yeah. yeah. Because but the statistics to, we're going to talk about... To claim that there we have absolutely nothing to worry about in our nearest neighbour is stretching it a bit. Yes. Well, it is stretching it a bit because you, got, you, know, you, you look at the, the Pew Research Centre, Muslim public divided on Hamas and Hezbollah. Yes. The very first picture there you know, you've got a position, uh, views on extremist groups, percentage of those that's favourable. Indonesia, 43% favourable of Hezbollah, 39% favourable of Hamas, and 23% favourable on Al-Qaeda. Yes. Yeah. You know, so, now so that's, that's outrageous. You know? So technically Malcolm Turnbull's right, the majority, <laughs> but that is a significant number, number of people. We did a rough calculation, didn't oh, we? Oh, 23% of 250 million... 15%. People, 15% is 37.5 million people. Yes. yes. Who support that kind of hardline Islamism. Yes. Well, again on this article from Pew Research, uh, further on, the one I like... Well, I say the one I like, I mean, it's the one that scares me the most I get, was um, support for severe laws, uh, views of harsh punishments. Yes. And um, stoning of women y- y- and, yes. and apostates. Yes. Stoning so, of women for adultery or you know, various other sex crimes, plus apostates. And a lot of surprising large number of people supported those. Yes. So, so when, when, when polled, the Indonesian people as to whether they thought they were in favour of stoning people who commit adultery... The percentage of Indonesians who said that was a good idea was 42%. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's worse than we suspect. Well, it's bloody awful, really, yeah. when you think yeah. about it. You know, you've got 42% of the population thinking that's, yeah. a, that's a good idea. But then again, you know, and this, this may sound condescending, but let's be real, you know, the vast majority of Indonesians are not that highly educated. I agree. It's and they have the madrasas, yes. where there are, you know, the madrasas' idea of education is that you memorise the Quran, and that's yeah. about it. Yes, and so the nasty it. bits of the Quran and yes. that. Yeah. So on the um, still uh, questioning Indonesians as to their views, asked, you know, are they in favour of whipping or cutting off hands for theft and robbery? Thirty-six percent are in favour of that. Mm. And the death penalty for people who leave the Muslim religion. So just for leaving the Muslim religion, should there be the death penalty? And in Indonesia, a country uh, of moderate, of, of open, tolerant society, according to Malcolm <laughs> Turnbull, um, 
where people are strongly opposed to extremism, 30% think that that's appropriate. If you leave the Muslim religion, yeah. you deserve the death penalty. Yeah. Yeah. Look, this is perhaps irrelevant, but back in the what was it, 1965, 66, there was a uh, particularly nasty and brutal massacre that took place in Indonesia. You chaps are aware of this, aren't you? After, uh, there, there was a, uh, a, an attempted coup d'etat, or at least that's what, what was claimed by the, by the Suharto and his military buddies. That was when Suharto took over the Indonesian government from Sukarno. It was alleged that there was a communist-led conspiracy to take over the Indonesian government, which at that stage was still quite young, post you know, Second World War, let's face it. And, uh, and several high-ranking military officers were murdered. And it was, it was all part of this conspiracy or this alleged conspiracy. And Suharto basically took control of the country after that. But in the following several months, um, estimates are that, you know, somewhere between half a million and a million people were summarily executed by militias. Now, I don't know in detail, but I'm, I'm pretty sure from what I've read that there were some elements of the local Islamic community, you know, like the Islamic leaders. And certainly, you know, most of the people in, in Java and where largely the massacres took place. They largely took place in Java and Bali. But basically they would go into villages People were fingered as being communist sympathisers. They were taken out and executed on the spot, and quite brutally, yeah. you know, by being strangled with wire and things like that, yeah. and thrown into rivers. Yeah. Between half a million and a million people were summarily executed without any legal process. So this is in a country where Islam was the dominant uh, source of morality. So it's not that surprising, is it, really? Mm. And, you know, I don't want to sound too, too harsh on our Indonesian neighbours. I've travelled through Indonesia and, and, and very much liked the Indonesian people that I met. They were, you know, I mean, they're just people yes. after all, and, and most of them quite lovely. But, um, but we have to consider the tone of the national culture and and the source of the morality and the ethics, don't we? Mm. Well, and the just indoctrination that they've been subjected to. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and just coming out with statements, just as Malcolm Turnbull did then, like he's already said that the ISIS were godless. Yeah. And, um, and now... He's shooting you know, from the hip a bit recently, isn't he? Now he's just promoting Indonesia as a bastion of, of an open, tolerant society. Mm. Not so open. Yeah. Not so tolerant. Mm. Uh, so it's a, weird. <laughs> there's a link to that Pew Research uh, statistics, and the other interesting thing on there is, gee, Egypt shows up badly on a lot of these statistics. I like wonder why. Stoning people who commit adultery, Indonesia it was 42%. In Egypt it was 82%. Mm. Whipping and cutting off hands, in Egypt that was 77 and death penalty for people who leave the Muslim religion, it was 84%. Mm. Huge numbers. In the, the rates of female genital mutilation are also very high in Egypt. Mm. I'm not sure if that's related, but I think it is. Mm. 
Um, so, um, and, and, and we know that something like 20% of the, is that right, 20% of the population or is it 10% are um, Christians, Coptic Christians. And they've been putting up, well, maybe not putting up, but they've been on the receiving end of a, a lot of bad stuff yes. for quite a few years now. Yes. So when you add 10% of Christian, even those figures are even more remarkable because I don't think the Christians are probably saying death penalty for leaving. Uh, <laughs> it would be religion. interesting to ask. Yeah, when you extract the Christians out of that, it'd be even higher. Mm. So... Uh, and one other statistic in there, Indonesia, 60, only 65% of Indonesians felt that democracy is, is preferable to any other kind of government. So there's 35% of Indonesians who don't even like democracy. Um, uh. so, so, Malcolm Turnbull, that is the facts on Indonesia from Pew Research. And oh, we're really just about coming to the end, I think. Are we? Yeah. yeah. So soon. Um, Syria. I promised Syria in five minutes. I don't know if I can do it. <laughs> um, okay, I'm going to give it a go. It was only in March 2011 that the student protests actually happened. Like, that's not that long ago. No. In four years. Which student protests? Uh, in, uh, in Syria. Oh, the Arab Spring. Well, there was a particular student protest in March 2011 okay. in Syria where some students wrote some anti-government graffiti. Yeah. And the students were subsequently tortured, and parents and other people said, look, that's just going too far. So there was a bit of a demonstration uh, which led to violence. And at that point, they were only seeking modest reforms. You know, They weren't looking to overthrow the government. But the Assad government was very heavy-handed. And um, so they just cracked down really hard on dissident students and their families. So um, what we had was uh, the US saw this as perhaps a sort of an Arab Spring type situation. Mm. So they were happy to support to feed the, um, the rebels. To feed the discontent. And they saw the Assad government as being a minority government, which they were. So the Assad government are Alawites, which is a sect of or a subsect of Shia and they were definitely the minority group in Syria, about 20%, I think. So, uh, sort of a, a rebellion against a dictatorship and America assisting the rebellion. Uh, the problem was that the opposition to Assad um, quickly became dominated by jihadist elements. Mm because we're talking now Sunnis mm. who are the ones fighting against Assad and a heavy jihadi element came in there mm. and became a very ugly group of rebels that you couldn't really support. So the US was then in a bind that the um, freedom fighters that they were supporting were suddenly jihadist madmen. Um, then... Uh, in 2011-2012, Iran was sympathetic to Assad because Iran being a Shia um, government and Assad was Shia notionally, mm -hmm. and Iran really wanted this sort of axis of Shia interests from Iran, Iraq, Syria and Lebanon, a bit of an axis of, of interest His there. So Iran was keen to protect Assad and to give him help. 
And uh, then we had a situation where Syria used chemical weapons against their own people. The USA got really angry about that. Russia stepped in and organised an agreement for Syria to give up their chemical weapons, which they agreed to do. And Assad recognised that, well, provided he gave up the chemical weapons, the West would stay out of the thing. So he was sort of emboldened by that, just gave up the weapons. And, uh, and thought, you beauty, the West is going to let me just do what I want to do here. By that stage, then the rebels got better organised. But also at the same time then, uh, we had Sakawi, who was ICE, or the Islamic State in Iraq, saw the troubles in Syria, saw an opportunity, thought, well, we might as well enter Syria because... Assad's busy fighting with the rebels. Sakawi was an Al-Qaeda yes, guy, wasn't Yes, yes, an Al-Qaeda offshoot. Yes. So they see that Assad is preoccupied with his own rebels in the sort of south and the southern parts of the country. Mm-hmm. So they move across from Iraq into the northern areas of Syria and call themselves the Islamic, Islamic State in Iraq and Syria. Mm-hmm. Then you've also got the Kurds, who are 10% of the Syrian population. So they're up there in the northwest sort of section of Syria and on the border with Turkey. And the Turkey, Turkey hates the Kurdish state because within Turkey is a Kurdish element, which is like a rebellion movement. And so, a lot of Kurdish people in Turkey, yes. I believe. So they're not happy with a uh, Kurdish state in Syria, the Turks aren't, so they are actually working against the Kurds. Mm. Meanwhile, the US is thinking, well, the Kurds aren't a bad option, so (laughs) so we've got the US supporting the Kurds, Turkey supporting actually... uh, And Turkey is a US ally. Yes, so so Turkey was actually helping and arming ISIS against the Kurds. So um, uh, then we've got the... Uh, at that stage, ISIS is controlling a lot of land, but not a lot of people because it's mostly desert. Um, and uh, on the ground, we're left with a whole heap of minorities. We've got so many atrocities that all these different groups are now hating each other. There are less mixed communities than there were before, mm. and everybody's evacuated to Damascus. So mm. there was 2 million people in Damascus at the start. Mm. Now there's 10 million people. Yeah. It's a kind of yeah. ethnic cleansing, in effect, isn't yes. it? Yes. All the minority groups have been swept aside. Yes. The way they worked that out was through rubbish collection. The people who collect rubbish were able to say that they're doing five times as much as they used to. And that's how they said, well, you were two million before, you must be 10 million now. Because it's really hard to tell how many people are in a place like Damascus at the moment. So at the moment, the balance of forces are equal. Neither can win. Um, If one seems to be getting on top, then the outside influences sort of support their fellow to bring them up to speed and um, and so you've got uh, Sunni versus Shia you've got Russia versus America and you've got popular revolution versus dictatorship there you go, Syria what a complete mess and it only started this whole thing March 2011, not that long ago And, you know, to suggest that uh, we can make a difference by sending over our uh, 
FA18s. It's, it's nonsense. Yes. It really is nonsense. So I'd really like the idea, as we discussed before, of somehow monitoring the border mm. and stopping arms getting in. And they've also got to um, stop oil leaving mm. the Islamic State yeah. areas to and be sold to Turkey. Yeah, yeah, exactly. On it's, it's really um, bizarre that anyone's buying yes. Islamic State Yes. Well, apparently it's being sold at a discounted yeah, price, yeah, and that's very, why very people cheap. are buying yeah. it. Yeah. yeah, it's still an awesome. So it's amazing that it can happen. Yeah. yeah. But I suppose from their point of view, if they can sell it even at half price, mm. it's still a lot of money to be made mm. yeah. to buy weapons and whatever else they need. Mm. They certainly have nice fleets of pickup trucks. Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so uh, I think we're going to sign off soon. At the conclusion of this, we'll play a little bit more of Tim Minchin, I think, and his... Um, his Christmas Carol, but mm. I don't know whether we'll be doing anything next week. I've got a feeling I'm going to be having a week off, but uh, the Velvet Glove seems more motivated. We don't know what will happen there, but um, for the moment then, it's uh, good night from me. Happy festive season, everyone. Yes, everyone. Enjoy your Christmas break, and uh, I'll talk to you if Use not next week. the C word. Oh, gosh. Sorry. <laughs> Bye, everyone. Bye now. Bye. See ya. ideas are tenacious it means that they're worthy children who in tax-exempt institutions are taught to externalize blame and to feel ashamed and to judge things as plain right or wrong but I quite like the songs well dear listener did you enjoy that episode of the podcast if you did i've got a favor to ask uh, first up Tell some friends. Let them know about the podcast. You'll be discussing something at some time and you might be repeating something I've said. And when you're talking to your friends, say, hey, I heard this on this podcast and it's worth listening to. And maybe pick an episode that you think's a good one and direct them to it. Like grab their phone and go to their podcast app and search for Iron Fist Velvet Glove and subscribe on their behalf on their phone and uh, and just put the word out. The other thing is you could become a patron and support the show. So if you go to our website, you'll see a link to Patreon and there are some different options for subscribing and paying per episode. And really the amount that you pay depends on what you get from the podcast. So there's different levels ranging from $1.50 Australian to, I think, $10 and various ones in between. It's really, what do you think it's worth? Is it worth a cup of coffee? Uh, is it worth more than that, less than that? Whatever you get out of it, because not everybody gets the same. Maybe you don't listen to the whole thing. Maybe you never talk about it with people. Maybe you really couldn't care less half the time whether the podcast is there. It just, it'll be different for everybody. So... 
if you get a lot out of the podcast, contribute a bit more. If you don't get much, contribute less. But in any event, you can subscribe there. If you don't like the idea of a regular subscription, the website has a link to a PayPal donation. So you could just do a one-off donation every now and again. So there you go. It'd be good to uh, spread the word, get a few more listeners, and that way, look, if we ended up getting more listeners and more money, we could do maybe a second episode or more special episodes, provide some more content. So it's up to you. If you think it's worthwhile, let people know. Thanks.